This is a Burn FM podcast. Hello and welcome to Moni Lisa, an art history podcast open to everyone. Whether you know a lot or a little about art, join us to gossip about the dark side of art's past. We're talking unfiltered feuds, frauds and affairs. I'm Ella. And I'm Nadia. What are we moaning about today, Nadia? Well, Ella, it's Christmas. And I, for one, have been in the spirit since Halloween. And thus, we are recording our first Christmas special. Great, what's on the Christmas to-do list? You're going to tell me about the man who made Christmas, and I'm going to tell you about the man who slayed Christmas, literally, (laughs) with eight reindeer and no GPS. Right, Nadia. We all know the Christian festival of Christmas started as, essentially, a big birthday party for our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, supposedly born on December the 25th. But for the first two centuries of Christianity, no one could quite decide whether to celebrate his birthdays or not. Oh, well, birthdays can be tricky. You usually forget, only to be reminded by a Facebook notification, or in my case, your nan. (laughs) Although, probably not what you're talking about. Well, historically, Christians considered it too pagan to celebrate birthdays rather than death days. Although, personally, I'd prefer a birthday cake to a casket. However, in the year 221, a man called Sextus Julius Africanus decided it should be the 25th because that's when the sun starts to shine and births spring and summer. The rest is history. Well, I'm still freezing and it's the 22nd, so I'm not really sure I agree with him there. (laughs) So how was Jesus' birthday celebrated back then? Like, nowadays I'm used to seeing a lot of children dressed up with tea towels on their heads, reenacting the nativity. Lots of artists have depicted the story too, I'm sure. Well, if I was to say, floating baby three men stripping off and lots of people looking in the wrong direction, you perhaps wouldn't automatically think nativity scene. But you're right, Nadia. Lots of artists have painted the story, many with weird attributes such as Roger van der Weyden's artwork from the mid-1400s, which I've just reductively encapsulated. (laughs) Well, I'm glad they don't include those things in the school performances. (laughs) Although, the kids are usually looking in the wrong direction (laughs) or picking their nose. Um... We definitely should put that artwork up on the Instagram to show people that it actually is as weird as it sounds. But these paintings, and there are a lot of them, came about because wealthy people used to try and bribe God to let them into heaven by commissioning religious artworks, like van der Weyden's nativity, to go in their local churches as a gift. Religious paintings are usually cluttered with random people nothing to do with the story. But aside from being able to show off that you're on the wall at church, the patrons were actually manifesting a religious vision. By picturing yourself at the birth of Jesus, you were demonstrating your devotion and hoping to inspire a visit from a saint who would tell you everything will be all right. That's why everyone not technically in the story has glazed expressions because they're not actually seeing it. And this is deliberate art practice. So basically they're photobombing the nativity. Mm-hmm. Vaden's nativity scene was massive and hung above the altar. All the candles below would light up the gold paint and people in the back could see the pictures, bringing the story to life, literally as it's set in local Netherlandish landscape. 
So I am assuming the painting can't just be three men stripping off. No, it has all the parts you'd expect. Mary tenderly doting on baby Jesus, surrounded by animals and angels, just with some odd additions that art historians call iconography. Basically, pictures and symbols that have come to indicate a specific meaning. For example, there is a flying baby in a gold circle above three men holding crowns. So we can deduce that these are the three wise men, although how wise is it to ask a baby for directions? We know they were led by a star, but this painting is suggesting they were guided by the light of Jesus, the Son of God, and the actual sun, like the star. Now, not to go on about it, but why are they also in the back, getting naked? Well, it's thought they're candidly having a bath. It's lucky we've caught them while they still have their pants on, because it could have been worse. There's actually two missing parts of this painting, one of which depicts Jesus' circumcision. Oof. That's not exactly what I want to be looking at in Sunday Mass. (laughs) (laughs) I suppose we all have embarrassing baby pictures, but worse still, babies have a tendency to smell. But any bad pongs lingering around Vaden's nativity were not Jesus' fault. It would be because the artwork was painted in tempera, a medium made of egg yolk mixed with pigment and oil, most likely sealed with a glue made from rabbit skin. Which came first, the chicken or the master? <laughs> the chicken, at least in this case. So I'm going to give you a couple of tips for when you're next in the gallery so you can show off, at least in front of a biblical painting. Great. This is exactly what we are all about. I need you to make me sound smart in front of my friends. Thank you. No problem. So Mary is always depicted in a rich blue mantle. That's a cloak. And that is her iconography, so she is instantly recognisable. She is usually the only one in the scene, like Vaden's nativity, wearing blue because it is so sacred and valuable. We call the colour ultramarine, and it's a pigment that's ground from lapis lazuli, a stone more precious than gold. So for money's sake, artists used it sparingly. The richer your patron buying the piece, the more you could splash on. Blue indicates her character too. It suggests purity and royalty as the Virgin Mother of Christ. I don't know why it makes me think of like a cartoon character that just wears the same thing every day. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm definitely going to use that one next time I'm in the National. I suppose it's the same thing really, as long as they're instantly recognisable. And my second tip, lots of religious artworks like Vaden's are called triptychs and diptychs. If you ever see that word on the explanation of the piece, you're safe to start showing off. So a triptych is made of three panels, which are just three separate artworks hinged together, and a diptych is two. The point of this is so the two outer panels can fold inwards, covering the central panel with some new artwork on the back. Oh, so why do they want to cover the main artwork? given they're so expensive? Like, surely you'd want your money's worth? Well, they only opened them on occasions and holidays. The three panels were good for telling a story, so the left panel is the beginning, the central the middle, and the right panel the end. The paintings on all three panels were usually of the same theme, such as parents and children, or the same story like the nativity. They're also handy because it means you can fold down an artwork so it's easier to transport. They're like the IKEA flat pack furniture of the art. <laughs> exactly. And diptychs are usually small, so if you notice an artwork with two panels, you can tell the person next to you that it's because it was a private devotional piece, made for personal use and handy to transport should they go on holiday. 
Fantastic. I'll be using that. Go forth. Artworks around with me everywhere. <laughs> it's a little like pocketbook form. Go forth and show off. My turn. So, as you've said, Christmas is a deeply religious holiday, but for lots of people in the modern day, it's a secular celebration. For them, it might revolve less around Jesus and more around this random guy who is known by a million different names. I'm talking Father Christmas, Santa Claus, Saint Nicholas, or the cheeky, perhaps over-familiar, Saint Nick. His identity has shifted over time, and yet when I say Santa, we are almost all thinking of the same guy. Fluffy white beard, red suit, rosy cheeks, lives in the North Pole. A bit on the podgy side. Don't fat shame Father Christmas, Nadia. <laughs> Sorry, but he is fictional. I'm not sure I can actually offend him. Wow, someone's getting coal in their stocking this year. So how did we get from St Nicholas to Santa the secular figure? Well, originally he was a Greek bishop born 280 years after Christ in Myra. And he was not known for being particularly fat or jolly. Bit of a Scrooge then. Well, he does seem pretty cool in all fairness, but kind of fiery. He was a bishop during what's known as the Great Persecution, where Christians were being forced to renounce their faith upon threat of death. So he's a defender of the church and he needed to be a pretty strong character. But he became known after his death as a patron of children and a bringer of gifts, which has loosely evolved into the Santa that we have now. Right, he's gone from fiery fighter for Christianity to a cool uncle that brings you presents. <laughs> exactly. So that's what I'm going to be talking about. And this kind of change in character all rests on two stories from his life that became well known and widely sar- circulated in the years after his death. Nadia, get these stories told. I am hooked. Both stories are pretty legendary, to be fair. The first and most well-known is the story of good old Nick saving three young girls from a life of prostitution. What? They definitely left that one out of the Christmas traditional story. I know. So the Bishop Nicholas, stealthily and anonymously, leaves three bags of gold for the girl's father in order to pay for their dowries and ensure they didn't have to turn to the pole. Pretty sure they didn't have strip clubs back then, Nadia. (laughs) Okay, I might be embellishing slightly, but the point still stands. He's giving them money so they can get married and don't have to live a life of debauchery. I see. The next story is perhaps slightly harder to believe, depending on where you're coming at it from. Supposedly, Nicholas entered an inn whose keeper had just murdered three boys and then pickled their dismembered bodies in basement barrels. Oof, I bet the mulled wine tasted a bit different that year. What a gruesome Christmas special. Would we even be the Moni Lisa without some gross stories? I suppose not. Keeping true to form even on Christmas, do continue. Well, Nicholas sensed the crime, albeit a little late if you ask me, and upon discovery performed a miracle by resurrecting the victims. So these good deeds involving kids led to him becoming the patron saint of children. So Nicholas saves kids, but where does Christmas come into it? Well, it just so happens that St Nicholas's birthday is December 6th, pretty close to Christ's birthday on December 25th. So for several hundred years, the two were separate celebrations. St Nick was a patron saint of kids and also known as this sort of secret bringer of gifts. And on his birthday, the 6th of December, parents would give their children gifts said to be from the saint, 
and use him, much as Santa is used today, as a figure to sort of encourage your children to behave. Oh, it's all starting to come together. What pushed these two separate celebrations into one? We still don't know how we went from Saint Nick to Santa Claus. Think of, like, a game of Chinese whispers. Whatever is originally said, having been passed on down the line, gets ever so slightly adapted until it's changed completely. Mm-hmm. This happened on a scale of hundreds of years, and so we start to see St. Nicholas take on characteristics we'd now associate with Santa. For example, he was gradually given qualities from other European deities like the Roman Saturn or the Norse Odin, who appeared as white-bearded men and had magical powers like flight. Mm. But the main catalyst for combining Christmas and gift-giving was, rather ironically, the Protestant Reformation. No. With this shift, the public no longer wanted to celebrate saints like Nicholas, but they still liked the tradition of giving their children gifts and still needed a way to keep the kids in line. I see, they invented Father Christmas to replace Saint Nicholas. In a sort of roundabout way, yeah, you're right. Although it was a very slow process. So you're used to giving your kids presents on the 6th of December, but imagine you no longer celebrate this day, so... The obvious move is to pick the nearest celebration and move it to that, which happens to be Christ's birthday. So, instead of St Nick bringing presents, the credit is given, for a while at least, to baby Jesus himself. That's a fair bit of work for a baby. I know, it's funny you should say that, Ella, because they literally thought the exact same thing. Not to mention, other than the presents, St Nicholas was a figure to scare the kids into behaving, and Mm -hmm. baby Jesus just didn't quite have the same fear factor. (laughs) So he kind of needed a trusty sidekick, someone a bit more scary and preferably full grown. So at this point in history, Christ becomes the giver of gifts, but various different versions of Nicholas were the enforcers of good behaviour. They were usually kind of scary and with some pretty harsh consequences if one did not abide by the rules. Yeah, I know that feeling. My dad rang Father Christmas quite a bit and usually when I didn't eat vine veg. Yeah, it was definitely always a threat used against me too. But this idea of Santa as being a judge of good character and behaviour definitely comes from St Nicholas. The whole naughty and nice list, that idea kind of stems from this. Which, in my opinion, is the true spirit of Christmas, isn't it? Santa judges all the kids and once you're an adult you're just judged by your weird aunt about your life choices over Christmas. It was the Netherlands, actually, that preserved the idea of Nicholas as a gift giver. The Dutch for Saint Nicholas, Sinterklaas, is the origin for Santa Claus as we may know him now. Mm -hmm. All these traditions were sort of brought to America and the UK and have been mixed and matched up to create our Father Christmas here in the UK. I see. Um, The holiday didn't really catch on over here, though, initially. It wasn't until the early 19th century where several authors resurrected this sort of old tale and with the power of words conjured up a character that would last centuries. The most famous and long-lasting of these was Clement Clark Moore's tale, written for his children, A Visit from St Nicholas, more commonly known as A Night Before Christmas. Ah, I'm 21 and my mum still tries to read me that every Christmas Eve. Oh, it is such a nice story, though. And it solidified a lot of our theories about Santa. The sleigh, the reindeer, the chimney. But we still didn't have a clear visual idea of him at this point. 
But over the 19th century, authors, illustrators and cartoonists, particularly Thomas Nast, developed the idea of Father Christmas until they landed on someone very similar to today. Overweight, wearing red, with a long white beard and rosy cheeks. That's so interesting. Now, I feel I must quickly debunk the theory that I, for one, and I'm sure other people have, heard by, you know, that annoying guy at the Christmas work do or whatever, that Coca-Cola invented Santa Claus. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not true. They oh. did have a part in cementing his image in public consciousness. So the drinks brand used Santa in the advertising imagery from about the 1930s onwards. They depicted him in a bright red suit because obviously the colour links to the iconic red colouring of the brand. And the Coca-Cola Santa was designed by Haddon Sundblom and certainly has really impacted the Western image of him. But he was shown as a fat old man in a red suit long before the advertising campaign. Yeah, I've definitely heard that one before. Although leaving Santa a can of Coke isn't quite as romantic as a mince pie and a brandy. I agree. Well, I for one certainly feel like I know a lot more about Christmas now than I did before. Both its origins and how it's morphed into what it is today. Christmas has been the inspiration for artists and creative people for a long time, for sure. Yeah, and to end on that note, what is your favourite Christmas-themed artwork, Ella? Do you know? Without a doubt, it's Raymond Briggs's illustrated books, The Snowman and Father Christmas. They make me laugh every time, especially when Father Christmas goes to France and eats too much fish and dairy, has awful dreams and wakes to cows rocking his camper van. They are timeless. Yeah, they are so sweet. I literally have the films on DVD and we watch them like every year. See, what's your favourite, Nadia? It's a hard one, to be fair. I like all the really traditional ones, but I think what I would go with is just a classic Monet's snow scene at Argental or however you pronounce that in French. Oh, very lovely. Um, It's just a really nice snowy scene in like Monet's typical style and it really gives you that sense of like walking through thick snow and like that sort of built up paint that gives that that really fluffy texture i see i think it's a hankering for proper snow because i always think of christmas very much as like the white christmas kind of thing and in the uk you basically just get slush that is very true well happy christmas um if you've enjoyed our Moni lisa show Please share it with your friends, drop us a message and subscribe on your preferred streaming platform so you never have to miss an episode. Be sure to follow us on Instagram to see all the images we've mentioned and then hopefully what we've said will make a lot more sense. Join Nadia and I next time as we moan some more in our next episode addressing sexism in art history, a feminist look at the art world. Now that topic really does get me angry. Me too. I can't wait to moan about it. Bye. Bye. Bye.